All right, I am very grateful to be here, and uh, we're going to open up Acts chapter 6 and 7. I was uh, reflecting the last couple of nights we've been staying on site, and I was reflecting about Riverband Bible Church and this pulpit and the Impact Conference, and I can honestly say that God has providentially used this church and uh, your conference to to really get me to where I am now in a big way. Um, people that I met through here led me to meeting my wife over in California. That's a cool thing too. So um, personally, I was talking with Andrew Young uh, last night and uh, someone understood what I went through, I believe, in uh, 2007 when Dr. Lawson was here at... Uh, Hastings Bible Church, some of you will remember that message, the Spirit worked in a mighty way. That was for me the moment whereby that internal compulsion to ministry really came to the forefront. Uh, I remember that night like it was yesterday. So I am very, very grateful uh, for this church. And uh, Matt was preaching with us a couple weeks ago. I was weighing up what to speak on here and what to look at. And my mind went to uh, Acts chapter 7 and Stephen. And I understand that it's not been a easy last couple years for, for this church, but God is faithful. And to hear the word that there are 28 baptisms in the last year. I don't know whether that stands out to you as something extraordinary, but those are all black numbers, are they not? Those are those are huge numbers, and God has been uh, incredibly faithful here. Uh, to Him be the glory. What we're going to do is look at the martyrdom of Stephen. I love this story uh, for a number of reasons, and one of them is it drives home the point that Christ will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What we're going to do is look at the end of the second half of Acts chapter 6. That's going to give us the context. I'll be reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. And then we're going to go to Acts chapter 7, which is Stephen's sermon. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached... 38 sermons on Acts chapter 7. It is the longest chapter in the book of Acts, and we're going to cover it in one go. We're going to read it all. We're not going to ultimately do justice to it, but 71 verses this morning. I believe that'll be a new record in this church, is it not? (laughs) So Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7 is a defense relating to two charges which we read about at the end of Acts chapter 6. So let's begin reading the Word of God. Acts chapter 6, verse 8 through to 15. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen is in the beginning of Acts 6, appointed as somewhat of a proto-deacon. He is appointed to help in mercy ministry, liking of giving food and aid to widows. He is a Greek-speaking Jew. And we see, we begin to see that he starts to do, with the apostles' authorities, Many wonderful things. Philip and Stephen take center stage in Acts in Acts six, seven, and eight. And we don't I don't potentially call them deacons because they start to do some very undeacon things, such as preaching and signs and wonders and baptisms. Essentially men like Stephen were assistants to the apostles. And it says that some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen didn't like what Stephen was doing. We don't know whether it's one synagogue or five. It's a bit hard to tell. Saul of Tarsus, who later becomes known as the Apostle Paul, was part of the synagogue of Cilicia. And what we have here is a group of Jewish men who are stirred up and they instigate against Stephen. And they said they stir up the people. It says they stir up the elders and the scribes. And they arrest him and bring him before the council. And the council is the Sanhedrin, a group of 71 Jewish men presided over by the high priest who dealt with matters relating to the Jewish nation. And here we have, the, for the first time in the book of Acts, a popular level uprising against the church, and specifically here against Stephen. Before, it had always been related to the Sanhedrin themselves, or the high priest. Here we have a popular level uprising against these new Christians. It includes secret instigations, false witnesses, perhaps people being paid to slander against Stephen. And they accuse him of blasphemy against Moses and God. And you might read that and wonder, how do you blaspheme against Moses? Moses is not to be worshipped. But later on in the text, it it helps. uh, You start to see a little bit more in verse 13. It says that this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. How does Stephen blaspheme against Moses? Moses was the one who gave the law through God. And to blaspheme against Moses is simply shorthand for saying blasphemy against the law. So Acts chapter 6 gives us two charges 
against Stephen. Firstly, that he is against the temple, this holy place. He is against the temple. And secondly, he is against the law because he believed some of the customs of Moses would change. So this is incredibly relevant. The temple is the means by which the people of God under the old covenant worshipped God. It's how you came to God. It's through the temple. How has this changed? And the law of God. What does God want us to do? It's incredibly relevant. So those are the two charges. And I want to draw attention to verse 15, the last uh, verse in this section here. It says, Gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. You might ask yourself, what does an angel's face look like? Can't imagine any of us have seen an angel, and that is the wrong question to ask. Whose face would have been understood by the people there, and Luke is our narrator here, letting the story be told, whose face would the people have understood to have been glowing like an angel? The answer, of course, is Moses at the end of Exodus. That story gets picked up by Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. When Moses beheld God on Mount Sinai and he came down, his face was glowing. And so we see Luke already putting something into the story to help us see who's the good team here and who's the bad team. Stephen is being accused of being against Moses and against God's law, but he's the one who's glowing like Moses did himself. So what we're going to do now, we're going to read the sermon. This is a defense in front of 71 of the most powerful men in the Jewish nation. This is a court case. This is a, a immensely intimidating situation for Stephen to be in. And Stephen goes on the offensive. The best defense is a good offense, is it not? So let's read. And it's going to take us close to ten minutes to do Acts chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, 
And after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of the twelve patriarchs. As the patriarch, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, seventy-five persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? 
this man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods which will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did not you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan. The images that you made to worship, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought in with Joshua when they, were dispossess- when they dispossessed the nation that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet said. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold the sin against him. 
And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. What we have just seen is a sermon based on the entirety of the Old Testament. A few bits left out, creation and bits here and there, but that's the Old Testament for you. This is very helpful in in showing how the early church read the Old Testament and the New. And so Stephen is using the whole of the Old Testament to argue against two charges. Firstly, that he's against the temple. And secondly, that he's against the law. And I do love that Stephen goes on the offensive to defend himself. This is a huge, critical, crucial moment in the life of the early church. Up until now, the Judaism had occupied a privileged position under the Roman Empire. The Jews were allowed freedom to execute their religion. And at this point, the early church is still operating under some of the care and protection offered to Judaism. And that's why Peter has been the one preaching most of the time in Acts, has been saying things like, we're simply the fulfillment, we're simply a continuation of what's been going on in the Old Testament. All these sermons in the book of Acts have been pointing back to the Old Testament. And as such, the church has had some level of protection But these charges now threaten that protection. Because as I'm sure you can understand, if you deem to be against the temple, and you deem to be against the Mosaic law, Jews that have have not accepted Jesus, Jews that have rejected Jesus, will not view you as their kindred. This is big. If these charges are true, then there's a big split that happens. And Stephen answers truthfully. He does not compromise. He answers the charges by restating the history of the Jewish people into four main paths. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, and then together David and Solomon. And we'll see why he chose to do that. Luke describes Stephen as being full of grace and of the Holy Spirit a man of strong faith in Jesus and with much wisdom. And some of you men could perhaps take this text and do a little bit of a study of Stephen as an example of a Christian man. But it is no surprise, I think, that Luke, who narrates the story, intends us to see glimpses of Jesus in Stephen. Not least the fact that he is an innocent man unjustly put to death, just like his Lord. So let's look at the first charge. The first charge is that he is against the temple. 
And we'll go through the text quickly. Stephen does not have an original thought here, just so we know that. In all likelihood, the words of Jesus are being used against Stephen. Listen to the words of John chapter 2, right at the beginning of John's Gospel, verses 18 to 22. So the Jews said to him, him being Jesus, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said to him, It has taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Who is the true temple? Who is the temple pointing towards? Jesus Christ. We don't have to do any gymnastics with the text. It's just right there. And how does Jesus rebuild this temple? He tears the veil to the Holy of Holies in two, and three days later, he rises again. John tells us that the true temple is his body. In the temple, people offered sacrifices, and the priests killed animals on altars before God. The temple was the means by which men and women worshipped God in Israel. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was the sacrifice, but he was also the great high priest. He is the priest that offered the sacrifice of himself. And he is the true temple, because a normal lamb would have been, the lamb of God, would you would think would be offered in the temple on an altar there, slain by a priest, was he not? But Jesus Christ was killed outside of the temple. He is the priest, he is the sacrifice, and he is the temple itself. He was not killed in the temple, he was killed outside of the temple, because he himself is the true temple through whom we must go to be reconciled to God. The sacrifice and the ministry of the temple pointed towards him. Stephen would have been saying that these temple temple sacrifices of lambs and doves are now redundant. They have been fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stephen's message has a form. I believe this form is based on the book of Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah, at the end of the sermon. At the beginning, very strongly lines up with Isaiah chapter 1. So his message, it points to places like Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 7, where all the hope of God's people is in the temple. Not a good time. And the prophet spoke against it. There's no love for God. There's no love for the Word. There's no expectation, really, of the promised Messiah, which the temple pointed to. He's describing a time where all the hope is in the temple, and the temple becomes the main thing. Jews would literally move to Jerusalem to be near the temple, and that's not a bad thing. But we must always remember that the temple is the place of worship, not the object of worship. 
Was the temple bad in speaking against the temple? Was the temple bad? No. The temple was a good thing. God ordered its construction. It was a good thing, but temporary. And so what the reason Stephen has chosen these four stories of Abraham and of Joseph and of Moses and of David and Solomon is because they are all examples of God being present with his people apart from the temple, apart from that brick building. That is why these stories have been chosen. The first is Abraham. It says that the God of glory was with Abraham. Abraham had no real estate in the land of Canaan, no buildings, no temple, just the promise that one day his descendants would dwell there, the nation of Israel. And God was with him every step of the journey as he looked ahead to the Canaan to come. Abraham looked ahead to the city whose builder and maker is God. Something that God does, not something that man creates. And he says that Abraham was given the covenant of circumcision. He was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob, the father of Joseph, and all the twelve patriarchs of Israel. This is the beginning of Israel's history. He goes then to Joseph. That extraordinary story of Joseph, sold by his brothers into slavery and bondage, left for dead, left in a hole in the ground, and then released and sold into slavery in Egypt. But this is the point, and it says so in the text. God was with him. He becomes the prime minister of Egypt in verse 9. And it says that God was with him in prison. He was with him when he was prime minister of Egypt. He was with him when he was falsely accused of rape. He was with him in the famine. He was with him when his father Jacob came down to see him as though he had been one raised from the dead. Because for years and years Jacob had believed that his son was dead. God was working. God was with Joseph in Egypt. And there was no temple in sight. It then goes on to Moses. Moses was Jewish born, but we tend to forget that he was brought up Egyptian by Pharaoh's daughter. And here Stephen uses three sections of Moses' life divided into 40 years. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in exile, and then 40 years in the wilderness during the Exodus. And Stephen is driving at the point that God is with Moses the entire time. The man that was sent to lead Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into their promised land of Canaan. God is with him the entire time. And there's a very specific line here that Stephen chooses, and we could read it in verse 30. Do we remember the story of the burning bush? The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Where are we talking about? Where did that take place? Where was that burning bush? It was not 
in Mount Zion. It was not anywhere near the site of the current temple. It was in the foothills of Mount Sinai that God appeared to Moses and told him to go back to Egypt. And he uttered those words, I am that I am. God uses that statement, I am that I am, a statement of his self-existence, his self-reliance, his eternality. God is not reliant on anywhere. God is not reliant on anyone for his existence. God is not reliant on anything that we do to accomplish his purposes. Stephen is very carefully choosing his history as he demonstrates that God has been at work outside of the temple building. Then he goes to David and Solomon. And it says that David desires to build a house for God. But Solomon, his son, is the one who actually builds the house for God. But what does Solomon say about the temple? At the temple dedication... In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon said, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And all this helps make the point that Stephen drives towards. He quotes Isaiah chapter 66. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. This is the big thing, that God is so boundless, God is so self-existent, God is so majestic, that the people of Jerusalem, and specifically these men of the Sanhedrin, do not understand that God cannot be defined and confined to a city block in Jerusalem. He cannot. And Stephen finishes up this message with a message that he wants the Sanhedrin to get. You notice that he uses the words, a contrast between made by hands and made without hands. You start seeing it in verse 48. Made by hands and made without hands. The Apostle Paul brings this up in Colossians chapter 2 and he brings it up in Romans chapter 1. He says to the people that he's speaking to, he says, you are uncircumcised in heart and ears. Your circumcision, your cutting under Abraham was supposed to point to conversion. It was supposed to point to the fact that you've been separated Unto God, you've been made holy for Him. That you've been cut off from the world and separated to God. But Stephen says to these men, and he says, you've only got a circumcision made with hands. Your ears are not separated unto God. Your heart is not separated unto God. There's no internal circumcision made without hands, made by God. You don't love him. You don't listen to him. You're fixated on external things like the temple and your heart is far from him. Woe is you. 
As Stephen quotes Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. It is a prophecy of Isaiah about the new creation that Jesus Christ inaugurates. Jesus ruling from the right hand of the Father in heaven. He cannot be contained. And yet you're so obsessed with the brick boating in Jesus in Jerusalem. You're so obsessed with the brick boating in Jerusalem that you've killed Jesus who that temple pointed towards. Do we see what's happening here? You're fixated on external things, he said. You're not fixated on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of all redemptive history. And so Stephen doesn't back away from this charge. He answers it head on. Like the golden calf at Mount Sinai, the temple had become a place of idolatry. And there's a lesson for us in there. Good things... And don't get me wrong, the temple was a good thing. Good things can become idols. They can capture our hearts and distract us from God. The danger is is that our hope and joy becomes bound to something that we've done and made with our own hands. I can imagine the temptation living under Roman occupation. The Jewish people would want to have a, a patriotic sense of, 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 of happiness and a tie to, to the land and their history. And the temple is such a thing. But it was not an ultimate thing. The tragedy here is, is the case with all false religions, we be, our hope and joy becomes tied to what we have done ourselves. And that's why Stephen says to these men, he says, you resist the Holy Spirit, because there's no place for internal change in your system as you have it. You only look at outward ceremony. God was never limited geographically. God was never limited to the temple. And so he answers this with these people's own history. The second charge is is easier to cover briefly because it focuses on Moses. And the second charge is that Stephen is against the law of Moses. And you notice in Acts chapter 7 that Moses gets the most screen time in the sermon. They accused Stephen of disrespecting the law. And yes, Stephen probably did disrespect certain interpretations that the Jews had added. Stephen most definitely would have disrespected some of the oral traditions that the Pharisees held to. But we have to understand Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5.17, it says, I've come not to destroy, destroy the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill it. What a verse that gets so misused and twisted for whatever people want to use it for. But what Jesus is saying is, I've come to give the law the highest honor that it deserves. So before we jump into this, this charge, what was the function and the purpose of the law. 
the law is divided into three. There's a threefold division of moral law, civil laws, and ceremonial laws. The moral summarized as the Ten Commandments. The civil is related to the judicial and national laws of Israel. And the ceremonial law is mostly tied to the sacrificial system of the temple and the dietary laws. And the law had a threefold purpose. Three uses. The first is to demonstrate the holiness of God and point to our need for a savior. The second was to govern the time and the land, a civil use. And the third one is to demonstrate, having now received God's salvation, what a righteous life looks like. So the law is to point to salvation and it is to show what a righteous life looks like. And so Stephen rightly focuses on Moses for the charge of being against God's law. Because the laws which governed Israel were given through Moses at Mount Sinai. (coughs) And we can't lose sight of the fact of what's happening here. He is standing before the Sanhedrin. 71 men who are experts on the Old Testament and he is retelling them their own history. Can you imagine someone sitting in a room with someone and they're just like repeating your own autobiography back at you? It must have come as a real shock to them. You're retelling us our own history, stuff we're very familiar about. We're talking about men that have memorized the Old Testament and he's just repeating it back. And he uses Moses in Egypt and he uses Moses in the exile and he uses Moses in the wilderness during the Exodus. And he says that in the 40 years in the wilderness, God was with Moses. But the point that he's trying to make here, and the point that Stephen wants us all to understand, what did God's people do with Moses? They rejected him. Who made you a lawgiver and judge over us? This great Moses, Stephen is saying, this great Moses, you're charging me with blaspheming against the law that he gave? Your own people, the Jews, our own people, Stephen's a Jew himself. Stephen is saying, they rejected him just like you're doing. He throws the charge right back on their face. God gave the Ten Commandments through Moses and they violated them by building a golden calf and worshipping it, idolatry. Moses is saying, this temple is your golden calf. He says, you are the ones rejecting Moses and committing idolatry and blasphemy because you believe you're right before God based on externals, based on your external worship. You offer sacrifices in the temple, but your heart is far from God and you think you're right because of that? You think you're right because you don't eat a bacon sandwich? Is that what this is about? Stephen quotes Deuteronomy 18, Moses in 
uh, Acts 7.37, and he says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Moses is saying, someone greater than me is coming and he will speak on behalf of God. Who's he talking about? Sunday school answer. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Not only have you rejected Moses, you reject the one greater than Moses who Moses prophesied would come. Jesus is the prophet who speaks on behalf of God. Prophets pronounce judgment. Judgment for sin. And prophets pronounce salvation, salvation from sin. And Jesus, the last prophet, in Hebrews 1, it says God has now spoken through His Son. Jesus pronounces judgment, and He's the one who carries out the judgment, and He pronounces salvation, and in Him is the name of salvation. Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin, you do not understand the history of Moses because you reject Jesus. You reject God's righteous one. That moral law, those ten commandments were meant to show you your need for a savior. They were meant to drive you to God for mercy. As Paul says, by works of the law, no man shall be saved. You're not righteous before God because you've kept the law. No one's done that to pass from Jesus. It was supposed to point you to your need for salvation, but instead you're boasting like you've kept it. The civil law relating to the land, it's pointing forward to a new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. The people of God are no longer tied to a land, but shall go out into all the world, and Jesus Christ is making all things new. The ceremonial law, or these animals slain on the altars in the temple, they were to demonstrate that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Apart from a substitute dying in your place, you cannot be forgiven because the wages of sin is death. Could all these animals offered in the temple finally forgive sin? No. No. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he slaughtered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. And that was just the start. That was just the start. Can the blood of bulls and goats finally take away sin, the author of Hebrews says? The answer is no. A perfect substitute, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was needed. One who had kept that law perfectly, who died in our place. The great sacrifice for sinners, to offer once for all a sacrifice acceptable to God raised on the third day to show that God was pleased with him and vindicated his sacrifice. What does Stephen say to these men as he explains this? You don't understand the law because you don't understand who the law is pointing to. And guess what? 
You killed that man. You killed Jesus. It says in verse 51, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That phrase, stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked people. Where does that come from? He calls them stiff-necked people. People so stubborn and prideful, they can't see another way. They can only, they only care about themselves. Seven times the phrase stiff-necked people was used in Exodus 32, 33, and 34. The golden calf incident. He uses the words that Moses directed at the idolatrous Israelites after they made the golden calf and he uses them right back at the Sanhedrin. You're so stubborn, you're so filled with pride. Your hearts are not soft with God. And if that wasn't enough, he says to them, you're uncircumcised in heart and ears. Where's that coming from? Jeremiah chapter 9, Jeremiah chapter 16, Ezekiel chapter 44. He's saying to them, you boast about not being Gentiles, you boast about not being like the nations, you boast about being Jews and better than everyone else, you boast about being clean, but your heart is not separated unto God. You don't listen to what God tells you to do. Stephen says to these powerful men, how are you any different from the world? How are you different from every God-hating Gentile out there? He's saying to them, you don't listen to God, you don't trust in what he's doing. He said, you're spiritually dead. You don't understand the law of Moses and yet you're bragging that it's yours. You're just like the people that stoned Jeremiah. You're just like the people that killed Isaiah and all the other prophets. He pulls out the dark bits of Israel's history and says, that's you. And do we see how he ends the message in verse 53? Regarding the law. He said, you received the law. And he says, but you did not keep it. Those were Stephen's final words in front of the Sanhedrin. You're proud of your temple. God gave you the covenants with you and your fathers. You're proud of the law of Moses, but you didn't keep it. You don't get it. God gave you this law to show your own unrighteousness and to point you to his true perfect righteousness. But episodes like the golden calf are proof that there's never been full obedience. You need a savior. That's what you need. You're sinners and you need a savior, but you killed him.
What an amazing thing to do to tell the most powerful man that has the potential to kill you, to make your life misery, and say to them, you do not understand your own history. You don't understand that God is not bound to a temple in Jerusalem. You don't understand the law. You don't understand the gospel. You don't understand yourselves. This message helps us to see something. It says that the temple is not ultimate. The law is not ultimate. Israel is not ultimate. The church is not ultimate. External things are not ultimate. Jesus Christ is. And so with their ears closed and their minds shut to the scriptures, Stephen is grabbed and stoned outside of the city. Before Pilate, in John 18.31, the Jews said, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. It was not lawful for the Jews to kill anyone in under the Roman occupation. Maybe that means that law has changed. But perhaps it was so that they were so filled with rage at Stephen that they didn't care that they weren't allowed to actually stone anyone. They did it anyway. And his death, Stephen cries out and he sees his Savior, Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, standing there. He begs for mercy for his attackers. Father, forgive them. Doesn't that remind us of Jesus' own words? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. An innocent man dies because of unrighteous men. Stephen is a disciple of Jesus Christ. He carries his cross and he imitates his Lord. Lastly, we see then a man named Saul, a Pharisee, presiding over this execution. The good news is that God radically changes this man's heart in Acts chapter 9 and he wrote most of your New Testament. God always gets his way. One of the reasons why I think this text is so helpful is that it's a stark reminder for us not to put our hope and our joy in things that we have made with our own hand, things that we have done ourselves. Ask yourself this morning, where is your hope and your joy? But one last thing is that it tells us something about the nature of the church. God used this persecution of Stephen, this martyrdom. He dies. God used it to send Christians in the gospel out. The message spreads. What was supposed to shut down the church, what was supposed to end this gospel preaching, what was supposed to end all this talk of Jesus, is actually used to send the gospel out and to grow the church and expand the kingdom. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, Tertullian said in the second century, and we see that so clearly here. So when I say this morning, and we started, and I said that Jesus Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, what we see here in Acts chapter 7 is a clear picture that Jesus Christ spoke truthfully, and that he is faithful in protecting his people. 
And that should give us hope. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you are. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you this morning that uh, there is a gospel, there is redemption, that you point us to Christ and freely offer us salvation. We thank you for the two young ladies getting baptized this morning and uh, we pray, Lord, and I pray for this church that there would be many more, that you will build it and establish it and keep it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.